He is risen. Amen. The first time we did that, I was really weirded out because I had never heard that before. Um, and everybody else seems to have heard it before. So if you're feeling that right now, it's okay. Today is a good day. Amen. Amen. Why is it a good day? Today is a good day because we gather to celebrate Jesus' finished work. Jesus' finished work is our great hope. And we celebrate that every time we come together, but Easter's a day we really celebrate. We really celebrate it every week, but this is a really cool deal because we're all thinking about it at the same time and making a point. For Christians, every Sunday is like Easter, but... Uh, We get to celebrate and focus on Christ's finished work, His victory over death. Amen. Praise God. I'm also very excited about today because today we get to learn from Jesus how to pray. Jesus taught His people how to pray, and and today we're going to dwell on that teaching. Now, we're going to explore this passage, Lord willing, over three weeks Um, Today, we're going to study this prayer at a really high altitude. Um, And when we study this prayer, we're going to see that this prayer kind of is split in half in um, logically split into two halves. First, God's holiness, God's kingdom, God's will. Second, our frailty, our need for forgiveness, and our hope in His preservation and shepherding care. So the next two times we dwell on this passage, we're going to dwell on those things. But I have today one goal for this message. I have one goal for this message. I want you to understand the relationship between what we are celebrating uniquely today and what we are studying in this passage today. Jesus' teaching on how to pray, and Jesus' finished work. I, wanna, I want to leave this place understanding the fundamental relationship between those two things. I want you to leave this place understanding the relationship between Christ's finished work and how Christ teaches His people to pray. And I'm going to try and summarize that relationship in a few different ways right now. But then we're going to explore the text and see it in three dimensions. So this is what I think is going on. Outside of the finished work of Jesus, this prayer doesn't make sense. Okay, let me repeat that. Outside of the finished work of Jesus, this prayer makes no sense. Let me state it a different way. You can't mean these words if you don't hope in Christ's finished work. You can't mean these words if you don't hope in Christ's finished work. Or stated another way, The finished work of Jesus is the cornerstone and the foundation and the scaffolding of this prayer. So these are 
many different ways to think about the relationship between Christ's resurrection, his victory over death, his finished work of redeeming his people, and this prayer. Okay? So, let's read the prayer together, and let's get into it. I want you to turn to Matthew 6, verses 7 through 13. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament, which is about three quarters of the way through the Bible. Matthew 6, verse 7 through 13. Hold up your Bible when you're there. Awesome. Okay. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Okay. So I want to back up for a moment for a bit of context. Starting in chapter 6, and we've been talking about this for a while, um, so this should sound familiar to you if you've been here. Starting in chapter 6, Jesus starts to draw some boundaries around True righteousness. Now, this is little r righteousness, not big r righteousness. We're not talking about if you want to stand righteous before God, you must give in the right way and pray in the right way and fast in the right way. That's not what we're talking about. What we are talking about, though, is that those who do stand righteous before God because of the work of Jesus are called to do righteousness, right? And that looks like this, all right? So, Jesus is drawing boundaries around true righteousness. And he says you should give generously. That's something you should do. Now, my people will give generously, but they'll do it in secret. And we do that to make sure we're not seeking the praise of people. And then he says you should be praying. That's something you should be doing regularly. But you should be doing it secretly. Because you shouldn't ever pray to earn the respect and the attention of people. And then he says, and you should be fasting. My people will fast. There are times and occasions where fasting is appropriate. But when you do that, don't let anybody know about it. Because the goal should be seeking God's presence, not man's praise. And you see what he's doing here. He's sort of directing our attention to the motive that is driving these actions. And this section kind of culminates in a set of choices. This is what we dwelt in last week. It all really amounts to one choice. You need to pick a kingdom. Pick a kingdom to invest in. Earth or heaven? This kingdom or the coming kingdom? 
Everything you do, your stuff, your attention, your allegiance, all your behavior is a window into your kingdom's citizenship. So stop investing in this crumbling kingdom and start investing in the coming kingdom. That's, that's this section. Now, just about halfway through this section, Jesus is, he pauses for a moment and he shifts his attention a bit. And he offers the most important aside in the history of the world. The most, I, it, it's really hard to exaggerate the significance of this prayer. And you know me, I, I, sometimes I say things in hyperbolic terms. I don't think that's the case right now. Jesus stops for a moment to dwell on the topic of prayer. Since that moment, this prayer has become central in the faith and practice and liturgy and theological imaginations of nearly every sect of nearly every generation of Christianity. This prayer is a big deal. It helps us know how to think about God. It helps us know how to think about ourselves. And ultimately, it trains us how to think about the gospel. This is a very important passage. So let's get into it. Before we get into the actual prayer, let's deal with this preface in 7 and 8. Jesus begins teaching His disciples how to pray by teaching them how not to pray. And He says, When you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Don't be like them. Why? Because your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So don't heap up empty phrases. What does that that mean? Well, we know what it it doesn't mean because we've been watching Jesus in the Gospels. Sometimes Jesus prayed all night, like in Luke 6.12, so it can't be a prohibition to pray for a long time, right? Remember that Jesus sometimes repeats Himself in prayer, like in the Garden of Gethsemane. So it can't be a broad prohibition against praying the same thing more than once. And we, we remember that Jesus taught His disciples that they should keep praying and not give up in Luke 18. So it can't be a prohibition against returning to speak with God about the same thing on countless occasions. One of my favorite stories uh, in, in, the, in, in the, the, my history at Redeemer... Uh, was in care group, and it involves Kim Huffman. Um, I didn't tell Kim. I was going to tell the story. Uh, we were sitting in care group, and, and it was an open invitation. How can we pray for one another? And Craig Bagley said, I'm afraid for the soul of my brother. I have been praying for his salvation for years. And he does not love Jesus. And we were like soberly, okay something we can pray for. And then Kim speaks up and he said, you know, my brother Ellis, I prayed for him for I don't know how long. It was like something like 40 years. 40 years. And just a few years ago, he started to treasure Christ and his whole life changed. That's beautiful. Not only because it's a picture of why walking together with our older brothers and sisters is a sweet encouragement to those who might be discouraged, but also because it is an embodiment of the, this call to just keep, keep coming to Jesus. 
keep coming to God by way of Christ and asking for the same thing over and over. Anyways, that's that's an aside. Um, okay, so it doesn't mean we can't pray for a long time. It doesn't mean we shouldn't pray for the same thing more than once. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't just keep coming to God on countless occasions. So what does it mean? It's, actually, there's a verbal thing happening here, which I think is kind of funny. Uh, I'm going to use one of my favorite words in the English language. This word is onomatopoetic. Onomatopoetic. Ironically, an onomatopoeia is a word that uh, sounds like the thing is, and I can't think of anything that is like the sound onomatopoeia. So it's like an inverse. Anyways, um, sorry, that was just a complete waste of your time. Uh, So uh, a word that sounds like it is, uh, like boom, uh, is a description of the sound boom, right? Or we used to call uh, West Side Story, not the most recent one, but the back in the day, the West Side Story. He's got a zip gun, right? Why do they call it a zip gun? You know, anyways, those, those are actually bad examples of onomatopoeias, but uh, okay, I just got to stop. I just got to keep moving. Um, all right, so the word here is batalageo, batalageo. All right, that's the, that's the Greek. It's bottle, bottle in Aramaic. I think I'm saying that right. I'm probably not. Um, but basically, it's, it's like a, a blah, 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 right? And that's the idea. Um, it, it, we have an English equivalent of this word, and it's babble, just babble on. It's just babbling on, right? Well, babble's an onomatopoeia that just means saying the same thing over again. We have a cultural illustration, which is Charlie Brown. And whenever the teachers talk, it's like, right? That's the idea here. Babbling on, just repeating yourself mindlessly. If we want to understand this, we can actually go back to the pagan practice. You can see this in the text. It says, as the Gentiles do. Um, the pagan assumption was that if you desperately wanted something to happen, you would name all the gods in a prayer, and, and you would make that prayer as long as possible, because the gods don't really care that much, and they're occupied, you know, feasting on Olympus or whatever. They're occupied, and they don't care that much, so if you just keep calling out their name, then maybe you'll get their attention, and if it's really long and eloquent and redundant, then maybe like at some point somebody will hear and pay attention, okay? We don't really have to look that far back, though, to see this sort of prayer. We, in our weak moments, pray this way sometimes. Uh, In weak, faithless moments, you just kind of think, well, maybe I just, maybe I just need to pray, pray harder. Maybe I just need to repeat myself over and over again. Maybe, maybe we're just coloring our prayers with a lot of theological language, you know, to sound more knowledgeable and impressive. So, anyways, but we, so we have modern parallels, but the idea is you're just stuffing, not from conviction, not from desperation, but for mere 
redundancy or just stuffing your prayers. And the trouble with that is it's, it's a misconception of who God is. God is not distracted and God is not distant. Right? Not, not in the way that the pagan divines were distant. Christ has already told us that he is in the secret with us. Right? He's not distant. He's not short-sighted. He doesn't need to be woken up. He doesn't have a short attention span. He's not like the little g gods. Jesus says he's your father. And he knows what you need before you have a mind to ask him for it. That's the kind of God we pray to. He's our Father and He knows what we need before we have a mind to ask Him. Now don't miss that because that framework is important. That's not accidental. It's there as a, referent, as a, as a, as a frame of reference for why we should pray what we pray. Right? God is your Father and He knows what you need. That's why we pray these things. Now, how we pray then should reflect that stunning truth. Alright? If you believed that you are God's dearly loved child, if you believed that you are God's dearly loved child, and that He knows what you need, even before you ask, you'd pray like this. Okay? And then He teaches All right, so we're going to read that prayer one more time. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. There's There's a lot here. There's a lot here, and some of it's going to have to wait. But this morning, I want to highlight three things. I want to highlight three things that this prayer is doing. Three things that this prayer is doing. First, this this prayer celebrates God's holiness. This prayer celebrates God's holiness. All right, here's what I mean. He starts with our Father. Now, I'm going to hold off on reflecting on those words for a moment. I mean, we've already kind of nodded in that direction, but I want to hold off. There's a lot of attention given to this prayer beginning with our Father, and rightfully so, because, wow, that's an earth-shaking revelation and a tremendous evidence of grace. But I want to set that aside just for a moment to reflect on what follows. He says, our Father... In heaven. He says, in heaven. I think we often pass over these words. Uh, Sometimes it just seems like an unnecessary adjective. Our heavenly Father. But this phrase is our first introduction to a major theme in this prayer and in this sermon and in Jesus' ministry. We are reminded where God our Father is. In one sense, 
God's everywhere, but this is our Father in heaven. He is high above us. He is high above us. He is where there is no sin. Where there is no foolishness, He is in heaven and we are on earth. His ways are high above our ways. He is holy. In a slight turn of phrase, we're reminded not only that our God is near to us, in one sense, our Father, but profoundly that He is far above us in another sense. And then immediately we pivot to this profound first request. Hallowed be Your name. Hallowed be Your name. Hallowed be Your name. What does that mean? The holiness of God, which was, I mean, I think vaguely, subtly alluded to in the, in the statement, Our Father in Heaven, that holiness is now explicit. But not in the way you'd expect. I would expect, I did expect, if I hadn't heard this all my life, I would have expected to find the words, You are holy. Right? Or, We praise you because you are holy. Yet, although the holiness of God is assumed and implied and structurally everywhere in this passage, that statement is in the content of our prayers. It goes without saying that God is holy. We are to pray that the world and us and God's people and the nations would see and honor and celebrate God's name as holy. That he would be hallowed. And God's name was, it's a little confusing. Why not just say God? God's name is a very Jewish way to say God himself as we encounter him in his character and his work. God's name being praised is God being seen for who he is. Right? Who he is. When God teaches his people who he is, He tells them His name. And then He describes His character. So the hope of Christian prayer is that we ourselves, together with every tribe and tongue and nation, would see God as He is. That we would revere Him in awestruck praise because He is holy and righteous and good. What does holy mean? Set apart. Altogether apart often referencing sin, darkness. He is light. He is righteous. And He is good. And He is wise and powerful. He is holy. And the first request and the cornerstone of this prayer is the longing that that holiness would be seen and celebrated everywhere. And he keeps going, Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. We don't just stop on longing that, that, that the world would see God as holy and righteous and good. We're desperate, we're desperate for His reign. 
for His kingdom. That God in His holiness and in His righteousness and in His goodness would come and fix the world. Right? That God would come and fix the world. We're beginning to see this theme of our desperation unfold. The Lord's Prayer is a joint reflection on God's holiness, God's righteousness, and our frailty, our foolishness and sin. That comes together with the sober recognition that the only hope for men is God to reign as King over the earth forever. That is our hope. That is our hope. We've encountered this notion already, once in John's preaching and many times in Jesus' teaching. The kingdom of God in Matthew isn't some distant, far-off conception. It's not like some, yeah, someday... Long, long, long time from now, the kingdom will come. In Matthew, the kingdom of God is already and it's not yet. It's already and it's not yet. Already it's coming. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness was the first glimpse of the kingdom of God. And since that moment, we get glimpses of God's rain scattering the darkness. Right? Get these little moments like torches. God's rain scattering the darkness. Those glimpses teach our heart to hope in the renewal of all things in the fullness of God's future kingdom. So the kingdom is already and not yet. We see it here now sometimes. When the people gather, when we lay down our lives on one another, uh, for one another, when we pray for one another, when the Spirit is at work among His people in giving gifts so that we would be built up together, we, that's a glimpse of the coming kingdom and it should train our hearts to long for His reign, His forever reign. And Jesus says, Your will be done. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's been a silent backdrop until this moment, but every word of this prayer has alluded to the broken and wicked world within which we live. It is a dark place. Read the news. It's horrifying. What's even more horrifying is that the news is keeping out some of the darker stuff. Because nobody really wants to read that. It's a dark world. Broken. Shattered by sin. Corrupted. Sin has corrupted all things. Even our brightest moments, you can feel that corruption. And the darkness reigns here. We weep because of it. All suffering, all hate, all violence, 
we have made this world a dark and terrible place in our sin. Our sin, not theirs. Uh, there's a great writer um, named G.K. Chesterton. Funny guy. Uh, I recommend his editorials more than his books because they're quippy and funny. Um, he was a notable figure in the late 19th century uh, in England, and a, a, a newspaper got this idea, we're going to send a request for articles, we're going to like reach out to every notable social commentators, people who are contributing to the cultural conversation, we're going to ask them this one question. What is wrong with the world? They started getting all these responses. Social inequity, economic uh, distribution, communism, whatever. Just articles, long articles coming in. They published these things. They finally got G.K. Chesterton's one-word answer. Me. I am what's wrong with the world. Sin has broken all things, and I am a sinner. So don't see the darkness as other than you and your deeds, your behavior, your thoughts. There's a lot of hope on the other side of this. And we're going to get there. But you, you don't get the gospel if you don't start there. Okay? All right. Your will be done. Wickedness is not God's will. Wickedness is not God's will. He hates sin. And He won't have it. In His righteousness and justice and wrath, God ends sin. God ends sin. That's His will. And that's, that's this prayer's hope. It's why every glimpse of the heavenly hosts is spotless, glorious worship. Because God is good and He makes things good. So where God is, there's no sin and there's no darkness and there's no violence. And we long for the day when God's will, as we see it done in heaven, is done on earth. Alright? This prayer begins with a celebration. Not merely a recognition of God's holiness, but a celebration of God's holiness. He is far above us. He is perfect and good and righteous. And we desperately long for His righteous reign here on earth because without His righteous reign, we are lost. Okay. Keep reading. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. I think perhaps the most profound moment in this prayer is how seamlessly we shift from a reflection on God's awesome power 
His awesome holiness and righteousness and His awesome reign to our sincere frailty. We are dependent upon upon God for even the bread we eat every day. Because God is the giver of every good gift. Every breath, every meal, every friend. Just then, when your synapses fired in your mind, conjured the image of friends and meals, that was because God held you together in His infinite power. He sustains and He gives, and it's all Him. And we need Him. We need God desperately. And here's where it gets hard, guys. That desperate dependency hangs upon His pardon. It hangs upon His pardon. Keep reading. And forgive us our debts. Forgive us our debts. As we also have forgiven our debtors. Woven throughout this prayer is a recognition of the wide chasm between the righteousness of God and His holiness and His goodness and the wickedness of man. And here, in this statement, we admit frankly and soberly that we are as much a cause of that chasm as any other man. We need His forgiveness. The audacity of our rebellion is accessible on some level by seeing how much we desperately need Him just for bread and how we have offended Him because of our sin. After reflecting on God's goodness and power, we admit that we are the problem. We are the problem. Not just because we've sinned, past tense against God, but because we are inclined to sin future tense against God. That's there too. Keep reading. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Why would it be a bad thing for us to stray near to temptation? These two statements, forgive us and keep us from temptation taken together, represent a sort of portrait of our wretchedness. Even in the face of God's grace, we are weak. That's why I wonder if you do too resonate with the lyric, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. This is stated another way. We have sinned, Lord, and we need your forgiveness. And if you don't get in the way, we'll just keep sinning. After reflecting on God's goodness, we remember our badness. And after reflecting on God's power, we remember our weakness. And after reflecting on God's holiness... We remember our wickedness. 
God is the solution and we are the problem. And there is the brilliant complexity of this prayer. Because the third thing this prayer does is it rests in God's mercy. It rests in God's mercy. Every step of the way, this prayer seems to take for granted God's mercy. Maybe that's not the right word. Maybe maybe it presupposes God's mercy. Maybe it assumes God's mercy. Here's what I mean. This prayer begins with the bold assertion that God is our Father. That He is our Father. Although we confess that God is holy and righteous and just and powerful, and although we admit our frailty and our wickedness and our rebellion and our weakness, we still call God Father. And we look to Him for rescue and we look to Him for provision and we look to God for forgiveness and we look to God for guidance and protection. Do you see the issue? On the one hand, we celebrate that God is holy, that He hates sin and overthrows the the wicked to rescue the world. All right? And on the other hand, we admit that we are the wicked whose sin has broken the world. Yet we call this holy God our Father and we confidently turn to Him for forgiveness and for patience and for rescue and for final deliverance. And my question is how? How? When I sinned, I made this holy God my great enemy. How can I now call Him Father? His kingdom come is the great ruin of all wicked men. How can I, a wicked man, hope in His kingdom? On what basis can I rest in His mercy? Easter is the answer. Jesus bore the penalty for our sins on the cross. That's how. Jesus took my sin and gave me His righteousness and conquered death. That's how. I haven't needed a tissue in a while. Because He died and because He rose again, I stand forgiven That's how. I, myself, who am a wretched sinner, can celebrate the holiness of God because Jesus 
The spotless lamb was sacrificed on my behalf. All of God's wrath earned by my sin was poured out on him. I have a great high priest whose blood was spilt to cover, to cover my sin once for all and who rose again and who sat down on the, at the right hand of God because the job was done. That's how. There's only one way that wretched sinners can celebrate God's holiness. There's only one way that wretched sinners can celebrate God's holiness, and that way is the work of Christ. It's the only way to make sense of this prayer, because without His covering, we are His enemies. If Jesus hadn't absorbed God's wrath, God's holiness, and His kingdom are very bad news for people like us. If He hadn't traded my sins for His righteousness, I'd stand before God condemned. But He did die in my stead. And He did rise on the third day, declaring victory over death. And He did sit down at the right hand of God because the work of my redemption was done And He does intercede on my behalf every moment from this day until the dawn of that kingdom. In Jesus, I can celebrate the holiness and righteousness and power of God. Amen? In Christ, I can confess my sin and frailty without fear. Amen? And in Christ, I can look with confidence in His gracious care. I can call God my Father and look forward to His coming righteous kingdom. Christ's finished work is the only way this prayer makes sense. And here's what that means for you. Here's what that means for you. How do you apply this prayer to your life? How do you you apply this passage to your life? First, Jesus is your only hope. Jesus is your only hope. You stand condemned before God who is holy. And He is coming. And He will reign. And that reign should terrify you. If you don't have a cover... If you don't wear Jesus' righteousness, that rain should shake you. It should keep you up at night. You should have nightmares about it. But in Jesus, that rain is our great hope. In Jesus, if you trust that Jesus did what you could not do, if you follow Christ, obey His words and hope in His kingdom and lean on His work, then that kingdom is the gospel hope. It is the driving hope of your life. Jesus is your only hope. Now, if you have set your hope in Jesus, then this prayer means a lot of good things for you. It means that in Christ you can celebrate God's holiness. God's holiness. His His righteousness, His high-aboveness 
is great news for His people. If you no longer have to be afraid of the consequences of His holiness, then His holiness means for you a kingdom that is glorious and beautiful. You can celebrate that in Christ. In Christ, you can long for His reign. His coming kingdom is something that every day you feel further and further longing for. More depth to your cries of, Come, Lord Jesus, every day. The end of sin, the end of suffering, the dawn of a creation made new, Oh, man. In Christ we can long for that day. In Christ you can submit to God's will just like Jesus did. You can say, I don't really, I'm not looking forward to this thing, but, but, but I trust You, God. You are good and You know better than I do and You have seen all things and You have promised good for Your people. So, I don't really want this, this. I don't want this illness. I don't want this loss. I don't want this season of uncertainty. But I trust You. Because I stand before you as a beloved son. Right? Just like Jesus. You can submit to His will. You can freely plead, Your will be done. Because we have a Father who knows what we need even before we ask Him. In Christ, you can trust in His provision. Jesus is interceding every moment. You have an advocate in Christ. You have an advocate in the Holy Spirit. And you can trust that if it has not been given to you, that thing would not have been good for you. Amen? We can can ask for our daily bread and hope that He will give us exactly what we need. In Christ, you have forgiveness. Maybe this is the best line for you this morning. Maybe this is the thing that you need to really lean into. Been a bad week, been a bad month, been a bad life. You've made a wreck of things. There is forgiveness in Christ. And then finally, in Christ, we can have confidence we will be kept till the end. He will keep us. And He will deliver us from evil. And we will celebrate His good and finished work and His coming kingdom. All right. Let's take the supper and celebrate that work.